Hey, and welcome back to the history of China. I know this episode is out a little later. I was trying to get it out on Sunday, but unfortunately, I was in the car driving from Boston to Chicago to help my brother move out of his dorm room. I know, I know, I don't like being late, but what can you do? But last week, we discussed the middle and later years of the Wu state. To reiterate, they had gone from barbarian state to inventing the first recorded Chinese navy in like what? A single generation? You gotta give it to them. That is no easy feat. And if they had had this great moment during the end of the Shang Dynasty, or honestly during any other time it seems in the history of China, we could very well be talking about the Wu Dynasty. But the fact is, we are not in another time in the history of China. Instead, we are at the end of the spring and autumn period. And just like we could have been talking about the Wu Dynasty, we could have just as easily have been talking about the Jin Dynasty, or really just insert any name of any hegemon state before the word dynasty. But none of them would have that title because this period of Chinese history marks the beginning of a new, and in the modern lens, at least for me, a much more well-known period, that of course being the Warring States period. Because for the start of the Xia Dynasty or the Shang Dynasty or the Zhou Dynasty, it was just a powerful state overthrowing a singular central dynasty. But now, well, there is no real central authority to overthrow. I mean, what are you going to do? The dynasty now is a joke, it's a relic of old traditions, and all power is just spread out amongst many powerful states. So the Jin might rise up and then boom. They are torn down by another powerful state like the Chu. Then boom, the Chu themselves are torn down by another powerful state like the Wu. And this just goes on and on. So nobody really can establish a central dynasty. Before it was just powerful state targets the dynasty, overthrow the dynasty, and then it's over. But now it's like almost an overpowered sports conference. Think like 2012 SEC football. Weak analogy, I know. But essentially, you have these powerful states, or teams for the sake of my bad analogy, and they just destroy each other. They destroy each other's record and ruin any chance of any of them having league-wide domination. Heck, LSU, Texas A&M, Alabama, Ole Miss, Auburn, all of them could have won the college football BCS Bowl, but not all of them did because they all tore each other down. And just like now, you have the Wu, the Jin, the Lu, the Qin. All of them are fighting and tearing each other down, so nobody really has the chance to overthrow the weak Zhou dynasty. The Warring States period is coming, but technically, though, we're not there yet. We're close, but not there yet. So, without further ado, The History of China, Episode 13, The Warring States Period, Part 1, In the Beginning. As mentioned last week, the Warring States Period effectively starts off with the fall of the Jin State. But did people in ancient China just go, Dang, I guess the Jin State fell, so well, let's begin the Warring States Period. No, of course it wasn't like that. 
It wasn't like a World War II where, yes, there was build-up we see now and then boom. Invasion of China by Japan or Germany running across the Polish border giving us a clear start to the conflict. No. None of that is here, because the Warring States period was a slow-moving train wreck to get to the start. I mean, do we even know when it starts? Not really. And some even believe that where we are now, just before the Jin State falls, is already in the period of the Warring States. So there wasn't a single event that marks the beginning or kicked off this whole thing. So with that, let's look at the Jin State. I already alluded to this, but there were constant and long-running leadership issues within the Jin state. From even the 7th century, royal families were vying for power over other families as well as constantly undermining the ducal authority. In fact, in 678 BC, the king of the Zhou dynasty tried to use his all-powerful position to say, the duke here in the Jin state that I talk to is the rightful ruler of your state. And there it was. The king of the Joe spoke. Everything must be sorted. Psych, we all know, and we all could have guessed this, that by now, that would have done nothing, given the weak position of the Joe dynasty at this point. I know it's a broken record, but believe it or not, the Joe dynasty is just continuously getting weaker. Two episodes ago, they were pretty weak. But now, they're even weaker than that. And yes the Jin state had their own issues. But it didn't stop them from dominating and conquering others. But there, though, lies the seed for more conflict. No, not in the sense that it affects other states, but that in once the Jin conquered a new territory, they engaged in a process of sub-infudation or rear vassalage. Upon reading that for the first time, I asked probably exactly what you're asking. What the heck is sub-infudation? And what the heck is rear vassalage? Essentially what it is was this. The Jin state would conquer new lands, and most times I mean like new new lands, not conquering other established states, instead going to relatively unconquered lands. However, instead of awarding titles and land to the central dynasty, i.e. the Zhou, they would instead give these titles and territories to vassals of the Jin state. They were essentially feeding themselves instead of the dynasty. And yeah, let's be real. A lot of the states were turning their back to the dynasty, but the Jin state did something others did not. Well, what did they do? Well, other states, like the Lu, or the Chu, or the Qin, or the Qi, etc., would often end fief, meaning give someone land in exchange for service, it's a classic feudal system practice, to the cadet branches of the ruling house. The Jin state, though, had their own policy. Powerful families then arose, which were given fiefs, like cadet houses in other states. What does this all mean, though? While other states, like, yeah, their bitter rival in the Chu state, had been centralizing for ages, and in doing so, they were creating effective bureaucracies within the state. But the Jin did something different. They just kept up their old feudal system, but by now it began to all snowball out of control. While other states were becoming essentially more of a centralized bureaucracy, 
the Jin state just kept entrenching themselves in a feudal system. And they became like a micro version of the whole Zhou dynasty, in that power was being pushed away to autonomous forces, in this case, in the form of royal families. These feudal lords, in a sense, began to run their own shows in their own respective counties, instead of it all just being centralized in the capital. And like the dynasty as a whole, it was not long until these now decentralized forces just fought amongst each other. Houses began to depose the dukes continuously, family clans were wiped out left and right, and the surviving ones grew more powerful and more aggressive. It's exactly what happened to the Eastern Zhou. States would wipe out other states, and the states that survived became increasingly more powerful. And by the year 540 BC, the Zhe, Wei, Zhao, and Han clans had become the predominant clans in the Jin state. Han clan? H-I-N? Any relation to the Han dynasty? Oh yeah, this by the way, is where they get their start. But it was only a matter of time until a multi-sided civil war would break out. And by the time that became a real possibility, the Dan and Zhonghang clans joined the upper echelon of the Jin state. So now, there were six. These were, of course, the six retainers, or in Chinese, the Liu Qing, that we talked about a few episodes ago. This were, these were the six ministers. These were the six that ran the Jin state. And at this point, these families were the NFL team owners, and the Jin duke was Roger Goodell. He was just a puppet of the owners. I'm sorry, two football references in one episode, and two not-so-good ones at that? I'm sorry, but bear with me. But as I have mentioned, the Jin and Chu states hated each other. We know this. They really, really, really hated each other. But by 546 BC, the Jin state had become so discombobulated internally, and yeah, some other small details, but this all pushed them and the Chu state to sign a truce. Essentially, the Jin state was just not able to fight them and said, look, let's just, let's have a truce. I can't. I can't. I got six warring families inside my state. I'm not going to unify and fight you. So now, with no outside threat to act as a unifying force for the Jin state families, internal strife began at a rapid, rapid pace. And in 497 BC, wars between the family clans and the duke began. Essentially, they might have all unified to fight the true state or unified to fight some common good. But with the truce being signed and no outside forces pushing in, all they really had to do was fight each other. And in August of that year, 497 BC, the Fan, the Handan, and the Zhonghan clans teamed up and decided to attack the Jiao clan's forces, and they crushed them. The Jiao had to completely get out of Dodge, flee the state, and obviously this irked the other major clans in the Jin state, as well as irking the heck out of the Duke. So in fear of themselves being attacked maybe, other clans in the form of the Han, Wei, and Zhir, Z-H-I, got together and said, we gotta put a stop to this. So they themselves went to the Zhonghan and Fan's fiefs and began attacking them. So, essentially, some clans got together 
and crushed another clan. Then in response, a bunch of other clans got together and attacked those clans. Confusing, yeah. But this second attack, done by the Han, Wei, and Jur, which, yeah, were the aggressors, labeled it, though, as a preemptive attack, and was under the auspices of maintaining the status quo of the Duke. Yeah, the Han, Wei, and Jur clans pulled the same thing Sulla pulled in ancient Rome. Hey, I'm attacking, but only to restore balance to the old system. They were saying, look, I'm here to protect the Duke and the system we had before, and yeah, they attacked the Fan and the Zhong Han, but real quickly, what about the Han Dan clan? They were one of the three that attacked the Zhao, right? Why were they not being retaliated against? Well, the fact is, they were irrelevant compared to the families that made up the six retainers. They essentially said, you're not worth our time. But in due time, the Zhong Hung and Fan clans lost. Not surprising, really. I mean, the Duke plus three unified clans were the Vegas favorites, and the house always wins. And what about the original victim here, the Zhao clan, the ones that were attacked first? They actually benefited from all of this, because after the Zhonghang and Fan lost, they were forced to flee entirely. So the remaining Zhao clan members, including their leader, returned home with no enemies. So now the hegemons of the Jin state court were the Han, the Wei, and yeah, the Zhao clans. But the Zhao clan, spelled Z-H-A-O, of the Jin state did not just spend the next decades chilling out. Instead, with the Rain Man-like remembrance of past wrongs, they stopped at nothing to eliminate the clans that had crossed them in the past. And in 471 BC, they wiped the Han Dan clan off the face of the earth. Yeah, the Han and Wei might have not dealt with them, but the Zhao didn't forget. And not only that, but a year later, they ejected the remaining Fan clan members out of the Jin state entirely. And then in 455 BC, everything came to a head. The remaining three clans, who initiated their power grabs in the name of the Duke, had now began to, let's just say, feel different about the Duke and the Jin state power structure. And this begs the question, were the Han and Wei clans ever really about protecting the Duke and the Jin state power structure? Or instead, and something I am inclined to believe, did they just see the Duke and the Jin state power structure as an excuse for bettering themselves? Regardless, by 455 BC, everything was coming to a front in the Jin state. A Jin state minister named Jir Myangzi, from, you guessed it, the Jir clan, used his position as a Jin minister began to demand land from the Han and Wei clans. And quickly, no, he did not just tell the whole clans and they had some democratic process. No, he instead talked to their leaders. But for the sake of not confusing you with all these names, I'm just going to use the royal we here. When I say he talked to the Han clans, he really talked to the Han clan leaders. And he really talked to the Wei clan leaders. Anyway, this Jin minister then turned to the Zhao clan and asked them the same thing 
in a very intimidating way. Give us land. But the Zhao clan, led by Zhao Shangzi, said, No, not a chance. So the Jin state minister of the Zhe clan said, Okay, and then promptly attacked the Zhao. You're not going to give me land? Well, okay, let's see how you like this. And what happened the last time someone attacked the Zhao clan? All right, the Han and Wei showed up, so to prevent this and to ensure his own victory, Zhe Xiangzi asked the Han and Wei clans for troops to assist him. And this time they agreed and sent troops to attack the Zhao. And yes, the same three states that had come to the Zhao's defense were now attacking them. And later in 455 BC, the Zhao clan and its leaders fled to the city of Jinyang, and for the next two years, they were besieged by this Jin minister from the Zhe clan and his Han and Wei clan troops. And on top of all of this, right out of Sun Tzu's playbook, this besieging force diverted the water supply away from the city. Because if you read Art of War, he says, Poison your enemy's water, divert their water supply, do whatever it takes to win. And here they are, diverting water away from the city. So the Zhao clan and their leader, Zhao Xiangzi, were stuck between a rock and a very hard place. So in a fit of desperation, and I'm assuming he was because after being besieged for two years by a much bigger army, he is now running low on food and he now has no clean water. So, yeah, I'm assuming he's in a bit of a state of desperation. But he had nothing to lose at this point, so he quietly sent out an envoy to the Han and Wei forces and essentially said, Want to switch sides? Please? What in that was convincing, I have no idea. And of course, he didn't say, Want to switch sides, please. But regardless, the Han and Wei clan said, Why not? So they promptly diverted water back to the Zhao city, then diverted a stream that split Zhe Xiangzi and his Zhe force camp in half. Then what did they do next? Well, they walked into the camp and killed the Jin state minister Zhe Xiangzi of the Zhe clan. And this is ancient times. Look, America just kept on trucking in the Cold War after JFK was killed. And in World War II after FDR died, the Americans kept on trucking. But in ancient times, losing a leader during a conflict was almost always a death sentence for that side. And this situation was no different. The old gang was back again, and the Zhao, Wei, and Han clans eviscerated the Zhe clan. And just like that, there were three. Some say that this marks the beginning of the Warring States period, 453 BC. And some say it started in 475 BC. I personally, and this is my own opinion here, don't really see this as the start. But moving on. You're probably sitting back and saying, well, now, it's only a matter of time until these three clans then just fight each other. And you would be surprisingly wrong, because the three clans themselves sat back and realized that they realistically could not fight each other and win, and they were all pretty equal, because none of them could feasibly get the upper hand on the other. 
So instead, they just labeled themselves the three jinns, divided the jinn state amongst themselves in 403 BC. And while this was all worthless and meant nothing in the grand scheme of things, King Wei Lie of the Zhou Dynasty, yeah, who cares, proclaimed all three new states as equal. Thanks, man, we needed that. But what about the Duke of the Jin State? Well, in 434 BC, the sitting Duke, Duke Ai of Jin, died, and he was succeeded by Duke Yo of Jin. But when the territories were split three ways, they left the Duke just two counties, the Jiang and Chu Wu counties, which, yes, are all in modern-day Shanxi province. So 403 BC, with the Wei, Han, and Zhao all but creating their own independent states, and technically they would indeed become their own actual states in due time, but technically they weren't yet. They were still the three Jin's technically. So nonetheless, 403 BC, the seven states of the Warring States map is effectively set. And this, this to me, is more or less the start. While yes, the Han and Zhao and the Wei would eventually become their own states, this is more or less what the Warring States are going to look like. So the Warring States are upon us. And before I continue anymore, I want to explain a few things. This period is filled with tons of confusing and endless war, often to no tangible avail in the beginning. But through all of this, some of the best thinkers and ideas come to existence. Confucianism, the widespreading of the art of war, Lao Tzu and Taoism, and so much more came to the surface in this period. The Warring States is how we remember it. That's what we call it. But there are literal texts from ancient China that refer to this period not as the Warring States period, but instead as the Hundred Schools period. This may have been a time of immense war. Nobody's denying that. Heck, these states would be fielding armies over 200,000 infantrymen strong, dwarfing any other known armies in the world, even the Persians. And these are just states fielding those armies. This is not even the full unified empire fielding these. But this is also a time of great cultural and philosophical growth, and growth that we still feel seriously today. So explaining this all in a linear story format might be hard. I can't realistically be like, quote, okay, here is a battle that makes Plataea or anything else from this date look like a bar fight, but also this year Lao Tzu thought of a cornerstone idea of Taoism. That won't work, because everything really needs to be dug into here because there is so much amazing stuff. So everything will be covered, but I have to better flush out how to do this all. But here's the rest of the foundational knowledge of where we stand now and where the Warring States period is sitting. There are seven states effectively that were part of the Warring States, hence it's often given the name the Seven Warring States period. And if you are able to right now, as in if you are not driving, check the map on the website that I put up right now and follow along here. So first, there were the just-mentioned three Jin's. So, state 1, the Han, 2, the Wei, 3, the Zhao. And you can see these all on the map. They're where the Jin state was. And then 4, and no, by the way, this order means nothing. But 4, there was the Qi state, QI. 5, the Yan state. 
Six, believe it or not, the Chu are still hanging around. And seven, the Qin state. Q-I-N. Oof. This is the westernmost state, and they're pretty much the backwoods state of ancient China. I'd be amazed if they were the ones to end this whole period by conquering everyone. But yeah, that, come on, that's not going to happen. But there, of course, were other territories. It wasn't just these seven. Yes, there was the U.S. state, like we talked about last week. Though again, like I said last week, they really just hung around. Didn't really do much until, well, they got got. And then, of course, there was the actual Eastern Zhou capital region. Because, yeah, somehow everyone just forgot about them and let them keep on keeping on. There were also the ancient and mysterious states in Sichuan. But right now, those states aren't on the stage yet. But don't worry, they soon will be. And in the Sichuan states, in the far southwest, there were the Nanzhou states of Ba, East, and Shu, West. And lastly, there is the cast of irrelevance. Kidding. Of course, that's hyperbole. But at this point, these states are size-wise and military-wise shrimps in a sea of sharks. They really don't have much of a say here. These being the Song, the Lu, the Wei, no, not like W-E-I, like the Three Jins, no, this is W-E-Y, and then of course there was the Jung State. So, the stage is set. The Warring States period is here. Again, we can't pinpoint an exact moment this whole mess starts, because unlike the Eastern Zhou, that one is simple, the Zhou just moved their capital east in 771 BC, simple, but here it's not as clear. But Sima Chen has opinion as to why 403 is the start. <laughs> you thought I had an opinion not given to me by Sima Chen? Get out of here. You know I'm always going to listen to Sima Chen. Because he said that the Warring States period begins when the Eastern Zhou Dynasty truly loses its last remaining parcel of legitimacy. And he sees the Zhou King in 403 declaring the Han, Wei, and Zhao States as equal as the most pointless thing ever, and essentially says, this is absurd, you, the Zhou Dynasty, have no say, and even when you do say anything, you just hand authority out and in turn lose your own. So with that, we are all set for the Warring States period. Heck, we might as well already be in it, who really knows? Next week, we will jump headfirst into the first major conflicts of the Warring States period. We will talk about the vast military growth and begin to touch on something I haven't really been able to touch on yet. What the heck was it like for a common person during this period? It's been kind of hard with the history I have to ascertain what normal life was like. I know I missed a few opportunities to do so, but I think this is a perfect time to talk about life as a common person during an age when there is constant war. And hey, Maybe I can start laying the groundwork for all of these new schools of thought that pop up. Why? No, not just because I think they're cool, but because they shape leaders in not just the warring states. Yeah, they shape leaders' thinkings. These schools of thought would influence the first Chinese dynasty, they would influence the dynasties after that, and they would influence the present day. Because yeah, they stick with the Chinese dynasties to come. And yeah, they're also pretty cool. So, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you all next week on the History of China. Lastly, though, real quickly, P.S. 
this episode might sound better. And that is because I've upgraded from a pretty bad audio system to a new one. So hopefully the compression and all the audio sounds way better. I am kind of an audiophile myself. Um, and yeah, see you all next week. <laughs>